0: Let's get agreement that this is a strategic part. That area of alignment and synergy can be very important. The future, we're committed to expand. Despite time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Shania Kennedy, assistant editor of Health IT Analytics. The promise of artificial intelligence in healthcare has spurred a growing interest in more advanced computing and analytics technologies, such as machine learning, in medical research and clinical care. Machine learning may be particularly useful in biomedical simulation and high-performance computing, which can help researchers gain insights into the localization and development of human diseases. Today, Dr. Amanda Randalls, the Alfred Winborn Mordecai and Victoria Stover Mordecai Assistant Professor of Biomedical Sciences at Duke University, is joining us to discuss how machine learning can help improve treatment planning and allow real time feedback for physicians. Dr. Randalls, thank you for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So, I kind of want to start a bit more broadly because you're a researcher and You know, some of my audience are researchers, but some of them are practicing clinicians. So I kind of wanted to start the conversation by asking you, you know, there are currently active projects using machine learning to improve treatment planning and allow real-time feedback for physicians. Can you describe some of these projects and the research questions that they're investigating?
1: Yeah, so... A lot of the projects that we're focused on really look at blood flow modeling. So, we're trying to understand how different treatment options may affect the hemodynamics of a specific patient. So, the crux is creating almost a digital twin, it's a personalized view of the 3D model of someone's anatomy. You know, we often look at adult coronary patients to try to determine if they need a stent or if they need an intervention. We look at pediatric cardiology patients to determine what's the best treatment option for those patients. And conventionally, we create this high-resolution 3D model of their arteries, and we run a blood flow simulation in these models. And those blood flow simulations are incredibly computationally intense. They take a lot of compute resources. They can take anywhere from a few minutes to 12 hours on large-scale resources. And what we're seeing is we're starting to use machine learning to kind of augment that need for the large scale computation. So to speed it up and work as a proxy to allow us to test, instead of just trying one treatment option, can we predict the results of, you know, 10, 15 different treatment options or even five treatment options to allow the doctor before they ever go into the operating room to test out different stents that they may place or different locations you may place the stent or different interventions. Or on the other hand, we have a lot of work trying to see how might that patient respond under different physiological states. So imagine they get a treatment and then they go and exercise or they're at rest or they're in Denver. How do we really optimize the use of the computing framework so that we don't have to simulate every potential scenario that may happen and actually predict, you know, using machine learning informed from these physics-based models, how a patient may respond under these different conditions.
0: So blood flow modeling, you mentioned, and it, it's it's simulation-based. So for a physician, it might be kind of hard to imagine how you get from something like a blood flow simulation to actual clinical practice. So you mentioned, you know, you're modeling the need for sense, predicting patient response to treatment, but I wanted to sort of ask you to elaborate further on that and sort of explain to us what the implications of improved treatment planning and real-time feedback are for clinical care? Yeah. So I I think a a really common
1: example that we're seeing get more and more accepted in practice and clinicians may even start interacting with because there are are actually several FDA-approved products in this space is looking at adult coronary disease, trying to determine if the patient needs a stent or not. In that case, what they're looking at is a quantity called fractional flow reserve, So they're trying to look at the pressure gradient across the stenosis or lesion in the coronary artery. If that pressure gradient is above or below a certain cutoff, that's when you determine if they do or they do not need a stent. Conventionally, you would put an invasive guide wire in that patient, use a pullback method, measure the pressure gradient across that stenosis, and determine if that patient needs a stent. And what we're seeing now is more of the acceptance of providing a non-invasive way of getting at that measure by creating this 3D model of the patient's anatomy, whether that's from CT scans, MRI scans, and then running a blood flow simulation. So you're kind of creating this digital twin. And in this digital vascular twin, you then can measure the pressure gradient in a non-invasive manner and determine if that patient needs a stent or not. We're seeing that use of high-performance computing, physics-based models, you know, already deployed in the clinic. There are many commercial products at this stage. And you can kind of imagine the next step is, you know, we can do the diagnostic side, identify do they need a stent? And the next question is, you know, what stent do they need? We have one project right now where we're looking at lesions that are at bifurcation. So you might have a lesion in both the main branch. though so bifurcation being like Y bifurcation or a Y shape. And you may have a lesion both in the main branch and in the side branch. And we can use these models to virtually test what would happen if I stented just the main branch, if I stented both the side branch and the main branch, you know, and and all of these different permutations. And you can do that virtually using these digital models without ever stepping into the operating room and having to deploy anything and kind of test it out virtually ahead of time. But each of these simulations is then very computationally intense. And that's where the machine learning can come in of, can we try stents of different lengths or different strut types or different stents themselves? Try different locations. We look at pediatric patients who are trying to put a shunt in, and you're looking at, you know, the angle of the shunt, the diameter of the shunt. So you know, really trying to fine tune different interventions, and using machine learning, you can kind of capture all these different permutations without having to, you know, model each individual one.
0: And what's interesting here, to me at least, is that you're using this for serious conditions, coronary conditions, which of course are life threatening and come with their own complications and challenges such as the invasive nature of something like a stent, a shunt, things like that. And you mentioned looking at diagnostics, which can be challenging, as I hear all the time from other clinicians and other researchers who are also sort of working in a similar space with AI and machine learning. So I wanted to ask you about some of the challenges that are associated with more traditional efforts to improve treatment planning and, you know, efforts to provide clinicians with feedback just for context.
1: There are a lot of examples in practice now where we're starting to see even with these digital models and these in silico based simulations where we work with surgeons and they may define three or four different options of what they want to test. If I could put these three different stents in or I could try a shunt of these three different angles and then we will go and simulate those exact responses, come back to them with the finite element model or the lattice bolts, you know, whichever computational model you're using and then come back to them with those results. The problem there is that You know, depending on the model you're using, if they want three to five different options, it may take 10 hours per option to simulate that. So they have to wait at least a full day to get those results back. Even if it's a few hours, you know, the patient has already left the clinic. If they need to go back and get other medical images, if they need to get other measurements to fine tune the model. If they then say, you know, well, that was great, but we tried a 30 degree angle, but I'd really, you know, based on these results, would love to see the result of a 35 degree angle. They then have to wait another day to get those results. And so it works and it gives you a sense of testing these models. Sometimes people will do treatment planning with 3D printing or, you know, other options. to really see how would these treatments affect the patient before you'd enter the operating room. But there's always this turnaround time of, you know, how do we get enough results back to them and get that feedback, whereas if you're using something like machine learning, you can get real time feedback, they can really interact with it, and change the model and see and make dynamic decisions and inform that in a better way. And we're also trying to work with tools like virtual reality to allow them to have an immersive interaction that's much more intuitive so that you don't have to necessarily have the engineer in the mix that knows how to run the large-scale parallel program or knows how to run the machine learning program, because you also have those kind of issues. The clinician is not going to want to go and use any command line processing to get the results. So we're trying to figure out ways of you know allowing them to interact with it in an intuitive and hopefully immersive environment as well.
0: And you've actually sort of already touched on the next topic that I wanted to sort of segue into here because you're speaking about one of the biggest benefits here is the better turnaround time, that time efficiency, which, of course, is critical in the clinical setting. There's no doubt about that. But I wonder if there are any other ways that this tech can help address some of the challenges with treatment planning and, you know, real-time feedback outside of sort of what you've already mentioned.
1: Yeah, I'd say one of the big pieces, I kind of touched on it, but is trying to use it to really assess the wide breadth of potential states a patient may undergo when they leave the clinic. It's very easy to measure heart rate. Whatever metrics you're interested in, it's easy to get in the clinic while the patient is sitting there, but trying to understand how is this treatment going to affect the patient when they leave the clinic and they're going about their day-to-day lives, how do you see what's going to happen? And you can imagine there's a countless number of situations that could occur. We've done work before where we tried to simulate many different velocity states of the blood flow and how that might be affected by different exercise states if the patient were anemic, if they become pregnant any, you know, different activities that could really affect that patient, their cardiac output, their blood flow in any way. And it's possible, but if you're going to simulate each of those individual outcomes, again, you're running into this huge computational question. We had one study where we were looking at modeling all the different states and trying to span different hematocrit levels, viscosity states for the blood, velocity flow rates based on exercise states and things like that. And it took about like, I think at the time it was like 70 million plus compute hours just to run all of those potential states for one patient. And that's just not tractable (laughs) for for going forward and trying to use this and put this in the clinic and have it be a usable way of assessing, okay, you know, maybe the pressure gradient isn't an issue today when they're sitting at rest, sitting in the clinic, but what happens if they're going to go at altitude or, you know, run in Denver? So we want to use, you know, technology like machine learning to allow us to kind of bridge that gap of we can't really afford 70 million compute hours for every single patient but we could use that to train the models and have more effective decision making in that case and identify in that work we're identifying the minimal number of distinct simulations you had to run for each patient to then be able to train the machine learning model and predict the rest of the states without having to individually run them
0: yeah and that time difference 70 million hours that's Wow, that is quite a difference with the technology. And of course, there's the efficiency side, but the approach also allows you to predict a particular patient's response to treatment. But of course, when we're talking about any sort of you know more personalized approach or personalized medicine, we have to talk about how the approach is used across patient populations. So, as we're winding down here, I know we talked about the implications of machine learning and clinical care, but I was hoping that we could sort of wrap up our conversation here by discussing health equity. So, I wanted to ask you about what impact would clinical machine learning tools like the ones we've discussed potentially have on health equity? There's a
1: lot of potential to try to see how do we actually make these tools more available, more accessible to a wider range of patients. We can also use them to allow doctors from different clinics to be able to interact these digital twins these virtual models allow a doctor from one hospital to more easily access the data from a patient saying you know at a rural hospital or someone who may not have interacted with these exotic disease states or something they may not have run into before it provides more equity in that sense of allowing you know to bring in other experts and bring in kind of other decisions but in general it also allows us to if you're trying to run a simulation of around you know several million hours for compute power It needs to be a hospital that has this large compute access. It's not tractable to be deployed in all clinics everywhere that you're at, but if you have a real-time, much lighter weight machine learning-based model, you could deploy that on a tablet. You could deploy that in the cloud. You're allowing easier access for people to access this type of technology aside from being able to you know, use techniques like transfer learning and other options to actually apply to different types of population really tune it to those patients and those subsets of the population.
0: Thank you for sharing that because we like to discuss health equity when we're talking about these sorts of modeling techniques because AI and bias is becoming a more and more sort of salient topic in these conversations, at least That's what I'm seeing with the people I'm talking to. And that's what I'm hearing about from my audience. They want to know more about, you know, bias and health equity and how do we sort of approach AI and machine learning, knowing that, you know, bias can be incorporated into models and you can miss it. So that insight is really important before we, you know, close out, I want to make sure that I am deferring to you as the expert in this area. If there's anything that I haven't already gotten your take on, or if there's anything that you think is important for our listeners to know about this topic that you want to share.
1: Just kind of building on what you just said, the, the main issue here is a lot of the models we're building and we're trying to create these training sets for machine learning for treatment planning. One thing to point out here is when we were training for the physiological states, all of the training set is occurring for that individual patient. We're not training at a population level. We're training from that specific patient, which is very important in how we try to get away from building in population bias based on what kind of data you have available to you and what's already being acquired. But you could imagine in the future, we could be using things like transfer learning, and we could be moving it to other populations and other areas. It's something we really want to take into account. The other key piece with this is just the interpretability. And I think it's always worth mentioning when you're thinking about machine learning in the healthcare space, you don't want to just use it as a black box. And it's important that we kind of look under the hood and understand how are these decisions being made, make that available, and have the doctors be able to see, you know, what is that underlying algorithm? How did it get from point A to point B? and give them all that information. And we're working with statisticians over at Rice University right now on developing specifically interpretable machine learning models, because if it's going to be deployed in a clinical setting, you you don't want the conventional black box machine learning. And I think that is incredibly important to keep in mind as, as we're going forward and seeing these models become, you know, more and more used. And at least in our work, You know, we're trying to see this as a way of giving the clinicians more information, but it's more clinical decision information and like guiding the clinicians, not replacing the clinicians. So it's just providing them with more information that they can look at. What might the blood flow be if you were to put a shunt in at a certain angle? They can look at that information and then they can assess: is that actually a feasible angle in this patient? It's just giving them more information so they can go in and you know make a better decision and be more informed in that treatment planning process. But I think it's very important to see it. As, you know, you're aiding the clinician decision, we are in no way trying to replace and dictate to the clinician what they should be doing.
0: Yeah. And I agree that that's really important to highlight because I talk to a lot of researchers in this space and they always emphasize to me, this technology is assistive. It's clinical decision support. It's not replacing a clinician. It's just helping them. And, you know, when I talk to people who aren't in this space and they hear, AI in healthcare, they go, oh, I don't, I don't want a machine to replace my doctor. So it's really important to highlight that that's not what this is. This is purely just to help doctors who are already, of course, so overburdened and clinical burnout, of course, is a major issue. Definitely. So that's all we have for today. Thank you again, Dr. Randalls, for chatting with us. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Feel free to reach out to me over on Health IT Analytics at skennedy at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic or share any healthcare-related stories you'd like us to consider for coverage. That's S-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y at intelligentmedia.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please let us know by following Healthcare Strategies on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. Thank you for tuning in. This has been an intelligent Healthcare Media production.